All right, so we get to come back to the gospel according to Mark this morning. So if you'll go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 5 in the first verse, just picking right up where we left off before. We'll read that passage um, together in just a moment. Mark 5 and verse 1. Once you find it, just keep it right there in front of you. We have all, I would imagine, probably in some sort of situation at some point in our lives, each of us have probably said the following words. This is a lost cause. Have you ever said that? And what we generally mean by that is this, you name it, this situation, uh, maybe this person, whatever it is, is beyond repair. it's, It's just pointless. It's hopeless. It's a lost cause. Mark 5 is the lost cause chapter. And we're going to focus on the first lost cause today. It's recorded for us in verses 1 to 20. And in this passage, we see a man who looks like the very definition of a lost cause. If we were there and we saw this man and how he was acting and what he was doing, we would have made that exact assessment about him. That man, he's the lost cause. No one can help that man. He's he's too far gone. And humanly speaking, we would be 100% correct. But this lost cause of a man on this day in recorded history had a divine appointment with Jesus. And it changed everything for him. And what this encounter should teach us is is this. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a lost cause. Let me repeat it. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a lost cause. Let's read the passage now. Just follow along with me. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. This is the word of the living and true God. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, And cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Amen. Amen. That is God's eternal word. May he write its truths on our hearts. Before we dive into this text a little deeper, let's give some background to this scene because there are some things that we can note that will help us get a fuller picture of what's going on here. This scene takes place just after Jesus had stilled the storm out on the Sea of Galilee. We went through that last time. Um, so what we have here, if you think about it, at the end of chapter 4, we see a wild sea. At the beginning of chapter 5, we see a wild man. And Matthew actually says, let's just clear something up here real quickly. Matthew actually says there were two demon-possessed men, Matthew 8, 28. But Mark and Luke only mention one of them. Now, that's not really a concern for us because Mark and Luke don't, uh, they don't restrict the account to say that there was definitely only one, as if there's some contradiction in the gospel accounts. There is no contradiction at all. There were two men, but Mark and Luke only focused on one of them. Maybe one guy did all the talking. That's a possibility. Maybe he was the, uh, the quote-unquote leader of these two men, while the other guy just kind of followed him around. We don't know exactly. But don't be concerned about that. It's not contradictory at all. And moving forward in this message, I'll probably use the singular form of the word man in this sermon instead of men because we're focused here on Mark's account, which just focuses on the one guy. Okay. Now, what else do we know about this scene um, from the text here? We can deduce that this was most, most likely populated by Gentiles. That area was. Now, how do we know that? Well, the pigs are a big hint for us. Pigs were unclean, according to Jewish law. So a large herd of pigs, numbering about 2,000 on this hillside, would probably indicate that this was a Gentile area, okay? And by the way, this is not what this message is about, but that is beautiful for us, isn't it? In the sense that Jesus crosses over the sea, goes into Gentile territory. He'd not only come for Jewish people, but he'd come for the Gentiles too. Non-Jewish people, which I would imagine is most of us here, right? So there's the setting there's some, just a little bit of background. Now, the first main thing that I'd like for us to think about about this passage is this. Let's talk about just the hopelessness of this man's situation. Maybe you've read this passage a bunch of times in your life. If you followed a Bible reading plan like we have down here on the table, if you're interested and you decide you're going to read the Bible through in a year, obviously you would come to this passage eventually. Maybe, maybe we've read it a bunch of times, but have we stopped and really considered just how badly this man was suffering 
This man, just think about it with me, this man is living out in the tombs where dead people are buried. And it says that um, he would just roam around in the mountains, screaming out, shrieking and groaning. Luke's account tells us he, just, he did all this naked. So you've got this naked man roaming around night and day, shrieking and yelling and grunting and groaning his way around. And can you imagine being maybe in the town in the middle of the nighttime and you hear piercing the night silence, this awful shrieking of this demon-possessed man? Could you imagine being this man, though? That's what I want us to do for a second. Try to put yourself in his shoes. I'm not sure that he could even fully express what was going on inside of him. He would just groan and shriek and wander. And it says he would cut himself with stones. Maybe that means the demons inside of him, they were trying to destroy him and to destroy his body. By the way, that's what Satan and his demons always try to do. They want to destroy any work of God that they possibly can. So here's a fellow image bearer of God, like all human beings are, right? Genesis 1.27 tells us that. And so maybe these demons are just terrorizing him to the point where they're trying to destroy him. And, and he, they're getting him to cut himself. Or maybe this man has just enough clear thoughts every once in a while to realize what's happening to him. And just out of desperation, he doesn't know what to do to free himself of these inner demons. So he cuts himself. Please come out of me. Maybe he just feels like he's going to explode and all he knows to do is to cut himself and just try to relieve whatever torment he possibly can. Can you imagine that? Homeless, familyless, friendless, naked, living in a graveyard, shrieking, bloody, and all the people who lived in that area had tried various things with him. Maybe they tried to help him, but maybe they were just trying to protect themselves and their families from that man hurting them. It says they had often tried to bind him. It says they would use chains and shackles. It says he would just wrench them apart. And he would break the shackles in pieces. Think about that. I mean, just pulling on your body, pulling chains off and shackles. I mean, he's probably got exposed portions of bone and massive cuts and bruises where he's snapped off these chains and these shackles. No one could contain this guy or help him. He was basically a wild animal. Imagine that. Imagine being terrorized by demons to the point where you start acting like a wild animal. And we know that's how he was acting because in verse 4, it says, No one had the strength to subdue him. And that word is translated into English as subdue is a Greek word that means to tame so Mark is telling us, no one could tame this man. We don't usually speak of human beings like that, having to be tamed, right? But people treated this man like a wild animal, and he acted like one. That's just the facts of the situation. He couldn't be around his family, if he had any. None of his friends could help him, if he had any. This man was what we would call a lost Cause. Would you agree with that? Here's what one commentator said about him. He is, a, he is banished as an outcast from society 
and must dwell with those whose sleep will not be disturbed by his shrieks echoing through the night as he lacerates his body with stones. He is condemned to live out his days alone amid the decaying bones of the dead with no one who loves him and no one to love. Wow. In my mind, I don't know about yours, my mind naturally uh, wonders, what was he like before this? You know? Did he have a wife? Did he have any children? Did he work a trade, perhaps? Did any of the townspeople grow up with him? Did they ever say things like, man, it's just so sad what he's turned into. I remember when we played together. R.C. Sproul even said that he wondered whether Job's misery, as terrible as it was in the book of Job, he wondered whether it really approached the misery of this poor soul who was tormented every moment by the focused power of hell. Remember, this man wasn't being terrorized by one demon or two demons. He was terrorized by perhaps thousands of demons. When Jesus asked for his name, the unclean spirit spoke up and said, My name is Legion, for we are many. If you're not familiar with that term Legion, it's a Roman military term. And a legion was approximately 6,000 Roman soldiers. Did this man have 6,000 demons tormenting him? Maybe. All we know for sure, there was many of them tormenting this man. And make no mistake about it, it ruined him. It ruined his life. None of us in this room have ever suffered this type of suffering. The hopelessness of this man's situation. Now notice with me this. The reality of evil powers in this world. I think it probably seems old-fashioned to some people to think that there are actual demons in this world. But the Bible is very clear that there is an unseen realm that's every bit as real as this wood right here and any other thing that we can see with our physical eyes or sense with our physical senses. Our senses can only take us so far. There's more going on beyond our senses. By the way, that's why science can't give us all the answers. Science is good for investigating God's glory in his universe, but you have to do science with your senses and they'll only take you so far. But the Bible says that our enemy is not made of flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 describes our enemy as uh, cosmic powers who are over this present darkness and it describes them with words like rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil. And we see other similar language in the Bible about these demons, these fallen angels. And I think nowadays, if we were to see this man, I think lots of people in our culture would feel much more comfortable coming up with a fancy, multi-syllable medical term to describe his condition. Do you think that? Psychiatrists might diagnose him with some sort of psychosis or something like that, and they try to treat him with medication. I think we like being able to um, put a medical term on something because when we do that, we think that we can control it and fix it ourselves. And I know there are legitimate psychiatric and mental problems that can be helped with certain medications. I'm not disputing that. But we definitely should not dismiss the fact that there are supernatural evil beings in this world that want to deface 
and destroy any semblance of God's handiwork in his universe. And once we come to grips with that fact, I think it will keep us from uh, reducing the source of evil into, in this world as our size. It, it keeps us from thinking that we can defeat evil all on our own, by our own methods, right? There's evil powers in this world that are much bigger than you and I. And they're past our own ability to contain or fight. There's a very real evil presence in this world beyond us. And by the way, I'm not saying we ought to obsess over that and begin to study demons frantically and learn to call them out by name and all this kinds of stuff. I'm just saying we need to recognize that they're real and that there truly are evil powers in this world outside of ourselves that are seeking to wreak havoc on everything God has made and they are beyond our human ability to defeat, okay? I've been um, listening to a lot of interviews lately with military special forces guys, Navy SEALs and Green Berets and Army Rangers and stuff like that. And not only do I find that type of thing interesting to hear about, you know, you get to hear about their training and you get to hear about um, some of the operations they went on, but here's something else that those interviews do for me that I appreciate. It's not pleasant, but I need it. It reminds me that some of the that there is some absolutely evil things that goes on in this world that we don't have to see in our safe American bubble. Other people in other parts of the world, they, they see it on a daily basis, up close and personal. But there are horrific, brutal, evil things going on in this world. And you can hear some of these guys talk about it. And many of them aren't even believers. But they'll say things like, I've seen what pure evil looks like. And it just reminds me as I listen to those type of interviews that there are forces of evil in this world, bigger than us, that are animating evil men and women to do Satan's bidding. And I'm thankful that we have people who... Uh, are the tip of the spear that will face those men and women who are being animated by that. They face it with bravery and resolve and they seek to protect human life. And no doubt demons are behind some of those evil systems and some of those false religions that we see just wreaking havoc in some areas. All that to say Satan and his demons are at work, even in our day. That's just reality. So let's think about this next. We've thought about how this man's cause was lost. He was hopeless. It was a hopeless situation. We've talked about these, the reality of these evil powers, but now let's think about this. There's a specialist for lost causes. Jesus specializes in lost causes. Do you remember when we looked at the end of Mark 4 where I mentioned, you know, Jesus, I think I've said it this way in my sermon, it won't be exactly right, but I said, Jesus had some business to take care of across the Sea of Galilee. I said something like that. Because he tells his disciples, let's go across to the other side. But he didn't really say why he wanted to do that. Well, here we see the purpose of that desire to cross the other side. There was a man on the other side who was absolutely gone, humanly speaking. He was acting like a wild beast, tormented by thousands of evil spirits. And Jesus says, no doubt with him in his mind, with that, with that man in his mind, Let's go over to the other side. 
Jesus sets out to free this man of his oppression. I love the picture that that poses to us. The picture of sovereign grace. Do you see it? Jesus takes the initiative to go to him. This man wasn't seeking God. He was just seeking relief of some sort. But he couldn't seek God. I'm not sure he could sustain a lucid thought. His mind was gone. So Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And he crosses the Sea of Galilee to this unholy, unclean place full of swine and demons to rescue this man. He seeks out those who need him, even when they don't even know they need him. Does that sound familiar? While we were still God's enemies, God reconciled us to himself through Jesus' death on our behalf. That comes from Romans 5.10. And if you look at what the Bible says about our pre-salvation condition, We couldn't seek him. We were dead, right? We're like spiritual zombies. We're like wild animals, spiritually speaking. And if we were going to be saved, it would have to be because God took the initiative. And that's what he does. Praise God. Trace your salvation back, Christian. As far as you can go, keep tracing, keep going. And the origin of it is not going to be found in a decision that you made. The origin is found in a decision that God made amongst the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past. Wow. He made the decision to save rebel sinners because he loved us. But we weren't looking for him, and we weren't asking for help. He just came after us. Isn't that incredible? And people stumble over the sovereignty of God and salvation. They stumble over doctrines of election and predestination and God's choosing and calling and so forth. But let me tell you, if he didn't choose people to save, none of us would be saved. That's just how fallen we are. We don't want him of our own accord. None of us were looking for him. None of us knew how bad we were, truly. None of us were lucid enough, spiritually speaking, to know what we even needed. We were like this man, roaming around, grunting, Groaning without a clear picture of what I even am or what I needed. And the only reason any of us ever see the solution is because God gives you the eyes to see it. We don't have that within ourselves. God has to give it to us. And I'm just, I'm just here to tell you I'm going to keep talking about God's sovereignty until the day I die because it's why any of us are saved. He deserves all the glory for it. I can't rob him of his glory by acting like it was part me and part him. No. I'm not an old man yet, but I live long enough to, to, to say that I'm ashamed of how much time I haven't given him all the glory for my salvation. I don't want to do that anymore. Salvation is not me meeting him halfway. Or me doing everything I could do, and then he makes up the part that I couldn't. No, it was all him. Anything of spiritual value that I have ever done, from repenting, to placing my faith in Christ, to anything righteous that I've ever done after that point, is all because he was working in me. 
It's his work. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's God's doing. So just like this man did nothing to be rescued, neither did I and neither did you. He came for us, brothers and sisters. That's how it happened. This message is called The God of Lost Causes. And I'm looking at a room of lost causes, aren't I? We can hide it a little better than this man. Most of us don't foam at the mouth or run around naked in the Jackson Cemetery cutting ourselves. But we need the power of God to transform us no less than this man did. One man put it this way, We might do a better job of hiding it behind our coherent words, our well-kept homes, and our smart attire. But we are just as battered. The power of the gospel is also for us, he says. I wonder this also, kind of flipping that around. Is there anybody that you've given up on? Whether they're a family member or a friend. Do you have somebody in your life that you've written them off as a lost cause? Let me ask you something. Are they too far gone for the Lord to reach them? Passages like this one remind us who Jesus is and what he's capable of, right? Don't give up on people. Don't ever throw in the towel and think, my son, my daughter, my sibling, my grandchild, my friend, whoever it is is coming to mind. They're past the point of, of no return. It's just hopeless for them. They've rejected everything. Nothing's going to do them any good. They're a lost cause. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of the Word of God that God specializes in those types of cases. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jeremiah 32, 27. We could go on with tons of verses similar to that. Nothing is impossible with God. And I love what happens here and what it teaches us about Jesus. Verse 2 said that as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat onto the shore, this man, who, who can't even hardly have a coherent thought due to this demon oppression, sees Jesus from afar off, and he comes running up to Jesus, and he falls down in front of him. And the demons start speaking. And they say, what have you to do with me? Verse 7, Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Matthew records for us in his account that they also said, have you come to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, 29. What does this tell us about the relationship of demons and the powers of evil related to Jesus? Are they equals? <laughs> Is Jesus on the good side and demons are on the evil side and they're pretty evenly matched? Is that how it works? Not even close. These demons are fully subject to Jesus as the king of kings. They know who he is. He's the son of the most high God. By the way, just add that to your notebook of reasons to believe in the deity of Jesus. Even the demons know. So... They see him 
coming from afar off, and they are compelled to run up to their superior and fall down on their face. And as I said, they, they called him the son of the most high God. And on top of that, when we take Matthew's words into account, apparently they know that their day is coming. They know they're going to lose in the end because they say, you coming to torment us before the time? You're a little early, aren't you, master? Is it time already? And they begin to beg Jesus not to send them away. They're just, they're just bent on tormenting something in God's universe. So they say to Jesus, don't send us away. Just please send us into the pigs. And I love verse 13. Look at verse 13. So he gave them permission. <laughs> that tells me all I need to know about Jesus' relationship with the forces of evil. Who's the one that has authority here? Who gets permission from who? <laughs> These demons have to ask Jesus permission before they can make their next move. So, friends... We don't have to fear Satan or his demons. They all answer to our Lord. They can do nothing apart from his permission. And really, that's the main point of this whole passage, this, that Jesus is Lord. It's the same exact point that he proved in the boat just a few verses earlier, right? When he calmed the storm by saying, peace, be still. Except this time, he's not commanding inanimate material like wind, waves, and so forth, which is amazing in itself. We talked about that before. But here he demonstrates that he has power over evil spirits even who have a of volition, they have a will of their own. But they have to listen to their superior. And there were many of them. They're just compelled to obey. There's no negotiation either. Do you see any negotiation? The demons don't say, okay, well, we'll make a deal with you, Jesus. Half of us will come out, half of us will stay. Deal? I don't even see them trying that. There's no argument. They do exactly as he says. He's Lord and they know it. And really, when you think about that, in a sense, the sooner that we learn what the demons know, we'll be better off. He's Lord. They know it. Maybe we got a little ways to go before we really know it. I don't know. Philippians 2 says, if you're not bowing down now to him, one day you will. Every knee's going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think the takeaway is... If that's our God, and he's told us that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's also told us that he's working all things for our good and his glory, then what in the world do we have to fear? Praise the Lord. What is it that he can't do? What is it that we have to worry about? Nothing. So I hope you see the power of your Savior here. It should generate trust in your heart. It should generate rest in Him. Now there's two reactions here at the end of this story. And interestingly, they both involve begging. 
Let's look at these before we close. The townspeople, they saw all this going down and they went and and told the ones who weren't there and more people came out to see what had happened. And it says, they all rejoiced and said, here's the Messiah. Will you stay with us for a while longer? Is that what they said? Sadly, no. It says they begged him to leave. Wow, why? Well, just prior to that, it says that they were afraid. They did not know what to do or what to think of a man who could do what Jesus just did. And it scared them to death. Just like the disciples in the boat after Jesus calmed the storm, it says they were greatly afraid. They couldn't compute in their mind. They didn't have a category for somebody who could do what they just saw Jesus do. And they, these townspeople rounded the tree line, perhaps, or rounded the cliff, and they saw that man that they had seen many times, naked, bloody, howling like a wild animal. They saw that man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And it terrified them. It made them extremely uncomfortable. That was out of their comfort zone, big time. I think Ray Ortland summed it up well. Listen to his conclusion here. There is no temperament Jesus cannot control. There is no madness he cannot soothe. There is no darkness he cannot illuminate. There is no chain he cannot break. There is no raving he cannot calm. There is no shame he cannot dignify. There is no nakedness he cannot clothe. There is no legion he cannot command. And when he proved his power... Restoring this dear man who had suffered so much for so long, sending the demons into the nearby herd of pigs, the people began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. He says, Jesus forced on them a choice. His transformation or their pigs. They preferred their pigs. Sure, their world was dysfunctional, but it was theirs, and it was familiar, and they preferred it to be undisturbed. And then Ortland sarcastically remarks, this passage in the Bible has nothing to say to us today. <laughs> it has everything to say to us, doesn't it? Everything. Do you prefer your world familiar? Yes, it's dysfunctional, but you kind of sort of understand it and you just prefer it to be undisturbed. Or do you want Jesus to come in and do some transformational stuff that will blow your mind? And while those people were begging Jesus to leave, the demon-possessed man is doing some begging of his own. But he's begging Jesus to let him stay and just be with him. Please let me stay with you, Jesus. Let me go with you wherever you're going. What a transformation. This was as sane as he had ever been. There's nothing more right than wanting to be with Jesus. And that is the new desire that this man had. And Jesus had just freed him from all of that stuff and those demons. Nobody else could do it, but Jesus did it. And maybe surprisingly, Jesus says, no, you're not coming with me. I'm going to tell you what I want you to do, okay? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So that's what the guy did. (laughs) And it said, everyone marveled. 
verse 20. They were amazed. They were astounded. They were seeing the glory of the Lord through his work in this man's life. So, as I close here, let me just ask you. If you're a Christian this morning, do you realize how much of a lost cause you were? If you do realize that, don't you owe everything to Jesus now? Another question. Do you realize the power and the glory of your Lord? I mean, have you really given that some thought? Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, God in the flesh. And do you realize that he's given you a similar charge that he gave this man? He tells all of us who have been redeemed by him, hey, go tell your friends. Go tell everybody how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. In other words, we're supposed to give them the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Tell them about his mercy. You can't tell them about his mercy unless you tell them about his wrath. The whole thing comes into perfect picture. One more thing. Maybe you came into this service today looking for some answers. Maybe you feel like this guy in Mark 5. You feel lost. You don't know what to do, where to go. I hope you've seen in the pages of Scripture, there's a God who can fix you. There's a God, the only true and living God, who sent his son Jesus to earth to rescue lost causes like you and me. And when we turn from our sin and put our trust in him, he rids us of all the guilt and shame that we were carrying and he makes us new. As new as that man was sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind, that can be you. All your problems won't go away, of course, when you come to Christ. You're still living in a fallen world. But your biggest problem by far your biggest problem is fully resolved. Fully. And that's the problem of how am I going to face my maker with all of the sin that I'm carrying? That's the biggest problem of all. And we all have that problem. There's only one solution. The Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He died to fix that problem. So when that, if, if you turn from your sin, put your faith in him alone, when that epic moment comes, and it will be a monumentous moment, you're facing your maker. Your sins are nowhere to be found. Where are they? They're gone. All you have on you is Jesus' righteousness. What a thing of beauty. There's no beef between you and God anymore. No longer enemies with him. You're a son or a daughter. And you can finally have joy and peace in your heart. You can have a clear conscience before him. Just come to him and he'll give that to you. He will not cast you out. And we can always talk if you have any questions about that. So, <clears throat> fellow lost causes, let's remember what he's done for us, shall we? He, he's clothed us, he's healed us, he's given us a right mind, he's expelled our past master, Satan, and he's given us a new heart, and now we get to sit, and we want to sit at Jesus' feet and worship in submission to him. He, he brought us a long way, hadn't he? Let's thank him now. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Father, in our own strength, we find ourselves to be absolutely no different from this demon-possessed man.
hopeless and helpless, wandering about with no help and no peace. But you sought us out. You crossed the sea to come get us. Thank you for your mercy and for your healing. Thank you for your compassion on us in that wretched condition. Lord, help us to do now what you've told us to do, to go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that you've said. And part of that, Lord, will be telling people what you have done for us and how you've had mercy on us. What a privilege. Our name was Legion. And now it's son or daughter and friend. Lord, we can't fathom why you'd set your love down on us, but you did. Lord, just strengthen your people through this message. Strengthen their love for you. Lord, save some soul that does not yet know you as their Savior. And Lord, help us not to give up on people that we have long prayed for. You may yet bring them to your feet in their right mind. Help us to be faithful and keep going with them. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.